This season of Well and Good with Art and Matilda is brought to you by Subaru. We love Subarus, and we think they're the perfect car for Kiwis. Indeed they are, Art, because Kiwis are doers, right? And so are Subaru drivers. We're the kind of people who are always pushing to sneak that little bit more out of life. We stay out surfing for that one last wave. We sneak in a trip down to the river for a swim. And we stay at the beach eating our fish and chumps until the very last speck of light is gone. So if you want to do more, do it with Subaru. Kia ora koutou. Welcome, friends. You're listening to another episode of Well and Good with Art and Matilda. I'm Art. And I'm Matilda. And this one, oh my God, I'm so excited about this one. So we've been wanting to get Dr. Livy on the podcast for so long, and we finally got her. I mean, she's arguably the goat of women's wellness, would you say? Yeah, I reckon even just, not even just women's wellness, like just nutrition. She is the reason why I started questioning the old school um you know, thoughts about nutrition and sort of spurred me on in my nutritional journey, I'd say. Yeah, she's she's pretty awesome. I was actually a bit nervous ahead of this one because I was yeah. like, ooh, Dr. Libby, ooh, yeah, exciting. But no, she was absolutely amazing, such a dream to talk to. And she's got a new book out called The Invisible Load. It's about dealing with stress and overwhelm. So we talk a lot about stress, the effect that can have on your body and ways to change your mindset so stress doesn't affect you as much. Yeah, we cover so many topics. Um, she is just so knowledgeable. I know, she's so knowledgeable. And we like, talked a lot about women's hormones as well, because as we know, that's a complex beast in itself. Absolutely. So we dived pretty deep into that, dove pretty deep into that, and yeah, I think you guys are going to get a lot out of it. So enjoy. Buckle in and let's go. Welcome, Libby. Thank you so much. It's a joy to be here. Oh, we have been so excited about this interview. Both Art and I are huge fans of yours, mm. and um, and we've got a bunch of your books at home. And The Beauty Guide is like one of the best books I've ever read. I love it so oh, much. Thank you. So we're just really excited to talk yeah. to you and oh, get some that. awesome knowledge off you. Yeah, I um, I yeah, I want to tell you this before we start. I'm like quite involved with nutrition, and I've been sort of you're hugely interested over the last. I guess, 10 years or so. And what spurred my initial interest was actually one of your books. I think it was Accidentally Overweight. You're kidding. Yeah, yeah. So a friend of mine just recommended I have a, have a look at it and I just couldn't really put it down. And it was just, it changed the way I thought about food and nutrition because I'd like studied a bit of nutrition at university. But your book made me like challenge things that I'd learned and it sort of made me think about things in different ways and so then it started this whole thing that I've kind of been going on the last few years so oh I'm very touched that's yeah. really lovely it's mm. the ripple effect it's I care yeah. very much about that so that's yeah. brilliant so for people that aren't familiar with you you're a nutritional biochemist yeah and so what does can, that mean can you talk a little bit about what that <laughs> sure. is because it sounds very fancy oh it's not fancy it's very geeky so I was at uni for 14 years which makes me sound really thick and like I failed everything but very much love learning and still do so I originally studied nutrition and dietetics and then did honours and then did a PhD in biochemistry so uh, I have combined that 14 years of uni with just over 20 years of working with people one-on-one. And from that, I've created what I call my three-pillar approach to health, which is where I look at absolutely everything through three lenses. And they are the nutritional, the biochemical and the emotional. So the nutritional is pretty self-explanatory. The biochemical is where I look at, for example, what leads a human body to produce stress hormones or why would a woman be low in progesterone? So that's all the biochemical aspects of it. 
the nutritional side of it really is looking at the foods and nutrients that support all the inner workings of our body. And then I'm probably some people's least favourite human when I talk about the foods, but especially the drinks that take away from the optimum functioning of those body systems. And then the emotional pillar, which this stage in my working life is probably my favourite, where my interest is really uh, developed. And that is helping people answer the question, why do you do what you do, even though you know what you know? because that sort of makes your eyes roll around in the back of your head. And it's not a lack of knowledge that leads someone to polish off a packet of chocolate biscuits after dinner. No one in your audience is going to do that thinking, oh, I'm going to feel so great after I annihilate this this packet. <laughs> we don't really understand why we do it. It's, it's emotional and we're not taught how to explore that part of ourselves. So I, in my work, I try to do that. That's a really interesting one because I think the emotional one, there's quite a bit more light being shed on that at the moment because people are realising that our emotions have such an effect on our health almost just as much as what we're eating, would you say? Yeah, probably. Well, more really because our beliefs drive our behaviour. So if you want to take better care of yourself but you've got a belief that you're not worth taking care of, it's very difficult to follow through on making more nutritious choices, getting off the couch and exercising regularly, all the things we know are great for us and that lead us to feel fantastic. It's the beliefs we have about ourselves that stop us from doing that. And we're often really clear about what we believe about things outside us. So we know what we think about that political party or that environmental policy or the family that lives in that house down the road. But if I say to you, who do you have to be to be loved? It'll take you a lot longer probably to tell me the beliefs you have about yourself and how you have to appear to others to be liked or loved or get approval. So we're not taught at school how to examine our own emotional landscape and yet it drives absolutely every choice we make. That's so true. Mm. Yeah, because even just on like in a really simple kind of form, it's like why is exercising so difficult when it feels great, you know you feel great afterwards, your body knows that it will feel great afterwards, why can't I just go and do it, you know? It's really weird. It's like, what is that barrier? Well, I mean, Art doesn't have that barrier because he just loves exercising and is like ready to go every day. But I find it really difficult, even though I enjoy it when I'm doing it and I enjoy it afterwards. Mm, so I mean, I, yeah, I don't, I don't find, I do sometimes find a bit of a barrier and have to like really make myself do it. Hmm. It is weird, isn't it? What is that thing that stops us doing it? Why do we want to lie in bed and not get up and go for a run in the morning? I'd say a couple of things to that. So it might be beliefs, but it can also be priorities. When people say to me, oh, I don't have time to exercise or I don't have time to cook from scratch, we actually make time for whatever we prioritise, but we've often never examined it in that light. So when you say, if someone says, I don't have time to exercise, if we reframe it and speak it truthfully, exercise isn't a priority for me right now. You've got to check in with yourself and say, are you comfortable with that? And if you're not, then re-examining your priorities and essentially your values usually goes a lot further towards changing the actions that we then take, Mm. I think, and um, helping us to not stay in bed as often. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And one thing that I've kind of done is I... I'm all about trying to create an environment that's conducive with living a lifestyle that aligns with my values. There you go. So, yeah, for things like if it is to try and exercise, then I'll try and make it as easy as possible for me to exercise. So the environment that I'm living in is conducive with me getting out of bed. So whether it's, you know, making... It all feeds into each other. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at one point I was like sleeping in my workout clothes so that I get up in the morning and I'm like, right, I'm good to go. So it was just like one less barrier between me and actually exercising. Yep. Yeah, that's brilliant. For me, it's scheduling it. If it's in my schedule, 
I go. So it's oh. in there six days out of seven and I go. I wish I was like that because then I know deep down that I'm the one that scheduled it so I know that mm. I could just cancel it. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's it's like, similar... well, you know, it's not a real thing. Yeah. I just take that out. <laughs> I reckon it's similar to like pushing snooze on your alarm. Are you yes. some, Do you push snooze at all? Used to, not now. Yeah, right. Definitely through my university days. I was world champion. Yeah. No, not now. Yeah, okay. Yeah. What about you? It's a huge waste of time now, isn't it? Yeah. I don't think we snooze anymore. No, we don't. No. I wonder what changed Have that. Have you retired you from to. it? Used you to. used to. Yeah. Maddie used to quite frequently. And it used oh, to like really a good 17 me. times or well, something. And yeah, he was because, just like, seriously. Because I'm not like, I can't go back to sleep. So I'm getting all this wasted time in the morning where Maddie sets an alarm and then she's like, yeah, well, I've got to push snooze like five times before I get up. I'm like, yeah, but that first alarm, that's actually when I wake up. So I can't get back to sleep after that. I'm so. good to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, we've nipped that in the bud, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> so your new book, The Invisible Load, this looks awesome. So can you talk a little bit about what it's about and why you kind of felt the need for a book like this? Yeah, I felt, thank you for asking, I felt like it was time for a deeper conversation about stress, essentially. So in 2011, I wrote a book called Rushing Woman Syndrome, Uh, based on my observation of women's health taking a decline because of the intensity with which they were living. And nothing has slowed down since then. In fact, everything's probably gotten faster. It's just that now I think the big difference is now there's a normalcy around it. Back in 2011, people were still, it was still very new to the experience in their body of being so wound up all the time, whereas I think that's only become more intense. And yeah, I think there's a, a real acceptance and normalcy around it. And it's almost was, a bragging right sometimes. Can you know, be, can't it? Yeah. Who's the, the busiest, you yeah. know, who, who has the least amount of spare time? Mm, yeah. And so in my work, I see so much suffering with sex hormone imbalances in women who are menstruating. And I see huge suffering in women who are transitioning across into menopause. The symptoms are very debilitating and they're getting worse, in my opinion. Um, I see more digestive system problems, uh, more thyroid problems. And sure, they can have other causes, but stress is playing a massive role in so much of that. And so I wanted to take the conversation deeper because I don't know how we're going to really alleviate some of that suffering until we can see stress in a different way. Because at the moment, as you say, people brag about it being so busy or they'll, they just sit with almost like a mantra in their mind, I'm so stressed, I'm so stressed, and they really feel powerless to change it because they think the stress is coming from the to-do list, the tasks, the people, the situations. And what I'm trying to do in the book is show them that you can still have a busy and full life, but it's actually your thinking, the way you think about all of those situations, people and tasks that causes you to feel stressed or not. I did a post recently on social media asking what led people to feel overwhelmed. And most of the responses were just ordinary everyday things. Juggling, work, husbands, homes, children's needs, that kind of thing, managing a household, just life in general. And I understand that. I get the intensity of that. However, we get this tiny little time on earth and if we spend most of that so caught up in I'm not doing a good enough job as a wife, mother, daughter, friend, colleague, etc., you miss so much of the beauty and so much of the joy of, of the privilege of getting to be on earth. So I'm trying to shift the thinking to help people see what stress actually is for them as an individual. And, and that's the, the main crux of the book. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think – we do quite a lot of work on positive thinking, visualisation and things like that. And that can be pushed aside as a bit woo-woo. But when you think about it, it's basically just 
the opposite of what stress is, and stress has such a physical response, then why can't positive thinking have a physical response as well, a positive Mm. physical response? Yeah, it's pretty crazy the effect that your thoughts can have on your body. Yeah, so what are some of the things that you're trying to get across to people in the book of ways in which they can Mm. wind themselves and de-stress themselves? So... Firstly, I look at the biochemistry, so what leads us to produce adrenaline and cortisol, our two two main stress hormones, because historically adrenaline communicated to the body that our life was literally in danger and cortisol was only produced when there was chronic stress, which historically for the human species were floods, famines and wars. And when you think about all of those scenarios, food was scarce. So in modern times when we have chronic stress from worrying about relationships or finances or our health or the health of a loved one, the body still thinks there's no food left in the world and responds accordingly. So your body's going to respond to the information that you give it. And when it has all that adrenaline and cortisol uh, zooming around, we've got to look at how that has come to be. So the first thing with adrenaline, unfortunately, and everyone's going to want to block their ears right now, (laughs) caffeine leads the human body to produce adrenaline. So I'm not the anti-coffee human at all, but I do think we need to be really honest with ourselves about how much we're having because adrenaline is the main hormone behind feeling anxious. Most people today, when you talk to them, will use that in their language patterns about, they'll say, I feel really anxious. And coffee or any caffeine from any source is going to lead your body to make the very hormone that creates those anxious feelings and it can push some people into a really uncomfortable place. So we all have a different threshold for when adrenaline becomes uncomfortable because initially it just improves our thinking, gives us clarity of mind, but then it has a threshold and you tip over into this really uncomfortable place. So caffeine's the first thing I think we have to examine. Uh, The second thing is we need to explore our perceptions of pressure and urgency. Now, not denying that there aren't things in the world that aren't urgent, There are, of course. If you get a phone call from school and your child's been injured, you want to get there as quickly as possible. That's urgent. But what most people have done with their thinking is they've made what they do each day full of stress and pressure and urgency. So the emails, the to-do list, getting from, you know, back-to-back meetings, they've made that full of stress and pressure and urgency, but they've chosen that way of thinking. So it might be a busy day, but it doesn't have to be stressful. The next thing I would say is... When I talk about stress too, please know that I'm not talking about trauma. In this context, I'm talking about everyday stresses like emails, to-do lists, running late, that type of thing. So in that context, I think that we're using the wrong word. I actually think stress, a more accurate word in those situations would be fear. It's just not really our language pattern. And so a good step to take, and what I talk about in the book is the next time you get into a really worked up state, instead of judging yourself, let's say you're running late, instead of judging yourself, berating yourself, I'm hopeless, I'm pathetic, I always run late, whatever it is, pause in that moment and think, okay, if this is actually showing me something I'm frightened of, I wonder what that might be. Because why would running late stress some people out and not others? That's how I know it's not real. It's a perception. So, so true. <laughs> They're looking at each other. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't mind running late. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I was previously just, quote unquote, a late person. I was late to everything. I was late all the time. And I just kind of thought it was who I was. I was like, oh, it's just who I am. I can't help it, you know. But then I hated being seen as the late person. And I hated having people comment me like, oh, yeah, but Matilda's always late. So we'll tell her, you know, half an hour earlier than the time 
And I really hated that. And that was what changed me. But now I've gone too far and I'm obsessed with being on time. Yeah. I get really stressed when I'm like five minutes early. You get stressed when you're five minutes early sometimes. <laughs> I'm like, no, it's okay. But it just goes to show that, as you're saying, it's like other people's perceptions that you're stressed exactly. about. Really, it's not actually being on time or whatever. Yeah, that's really interesting. Whereas art's okay with it. <laughs> so when you so when you're in that stressed out moment running late, that's one of the things I've recommended in the book. Pull the curtain back on it and see that what you're really stressed about or what you're really frightened of is what someone else might think of you. Mm. Which leads me to my final point to answer your question about some of the strategies. Well, there are many strategies, but another one in the book is this thing that I've called forward words. So we all have words, or they're really traits, behavioural traits or character traits. And I see them as words written across people's foreheads. And they are ways that you really want to be seen by other people. And so, again, another strategy that you can use next time you're really stressed and worked up on the inside, even though you might not reveal that to others, in that moment, just pause and think, okay, am I perceiving that someone is seeing me in a way that is the opposite of one of my forward words? Because most people, the character traits, some common ones, particularly for women, are they want to be seen as kind, thoughtful, selfless efficient, reliable, intelligent, or it might be playful, entertaining, like the list is endless. So if you sit and name your forward words, the ways it's really important to you that you're seen, they're traits that you've incorporated into your identity as you've grown up and they're traits that will have obtained you a lot of approval or love or acceptance, however you want to word it, across your lifetime. So we ingrain those behaviours and those traits that get us the most approval, even though we don't realise that's what we're doing. So then when you feel like there's a risk that someone is seeing you in a way that's the opposite of that. So if being selfless is important to you, if someone thinks you're selfish, it does your head in. It's a really intense experience for people. The reason that matters so much is it then changes the conversation you have with that person. So when you're running late or whatever it is, you show up and say, look, I got really distressed on the way here and I realised it's because I care so much about you or if you're running late for a work meeting, I really value my job and it's important that, to me that you know that I care, that I'm efficient, I am reliable, some stuff just happened this morning, blah, blah. So it just fosters a very different level of conversation and a much better connection because who's going to get cross with you when you're sitting there pouring your heart out saying, I care so much? Mm. Yeah. So it helps you to relax, helps your shoulders to come away from your ears, you do a big exhale you see your own beautiful heart in that moment because you can see that all your stress is coming from caring. You'd never stress if you didn't care. Yeah, that's so true. Mm. Oh, I, I really love that. That's a really yeah. great way of looking at it. Forward yeah. words. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> on, on hormones, actually, because I think it's such an interesting multifaceted topic, for women, like, is there a way or some hallmarks to know that your hormones are relatively out of balance or do you really need to get tested to know what's going on, would you say? Oh, it depends on what you want, as what the patient wants, really. So a good practitioner who's got a lot of experience can work a lot of things out from symptoms. Testing absolutely has its place. And some people really love tests. They love seeing numbers on pieces of paper. So either way works, I think. But some of the common symptoms, so for a menstruating female, really is your periods are supposed to just show up. And if they don't, there's a huge amount of information in that. So if you have uh, swollen, tender, congested breasts in the lead up to your period or heavy, clotty, painful periods, or you notice that you get a lot of mood swings in the lead up to your period, so lots of anxious feelings or irritability uh, or even immense sadness, uh, 
again, there's lots of information in that about what's happening. And the two main sex hormones for women are estrogen and progesterone. And we make, in the first half of the cycle, for the first 14 days, we only make progesterone from the adrenal glands. And it's once we ovulate, we make a big surge of progesterone from the ovaries. Now, obviously, progesterone plays a role in fertility, but parking that just for a second, the progesterone has very powerful biological impact on both men and women. It's a very powerful anti-anxiety agent and it's an antidepressant and it's a diuretic, so it allows us to get rid of excess fluid. But because the biochemical pathway that creates progesterone sorry, this is very geeky, but try and for the listeners, try and imagine it like a river flowing. So it starts as cholesterol and then cholesterol gets converted into a big, long, crazy word called pregnenolone. And then pregnenolone gets converted into our beloved progesterone, which is calming, makes us pretty chilled and happy. We make the biggest amount of progesterone ever when, when a woman is pregnant. So normally if she's going well, and she's not pregnant, 25 units is a great amount. During pregnancy, you have, right now, Matilda, you would have three to 400 units of progesterone it's circulating. With progesterone. Wow. <laughs> it's joyous. Yeah. <laughs> Hence your glow. So in that biochemical pathway, when you get to progesterone, there's then a fork in the road and progesterone either becomes estrogen, testosterone, or cortisol, one of our stress hormones. So when we are really stressed, the body's getting the message, don't hold too much progesterone because it'll increase your chance of having a baby, which the body doesn't want if it's perceiving that you're in danger or there's no food in the world, which is what the stress hormones say. And it needs that cortisol to try to save your life, to, to get you out of the danger that you're in. So stress enormously compromises our sex hormones. And it was a big reason that I wanted to take this conversation deeper because the suffering that women are experiencing now is just it's horrific and I just don't know how we can really fully overcome it unless we start to change our thinking. And and it seems to be so normalized as well, like the um, symptoms that you were talking about around your periods. We grow up being told that that's just normal, like, oh, I'm so grumpy, it's because I'm getting my period or it's like I can't come to work because I got my period, it's I feel feel terrible, I can't live my life. Mm-hmm. But it shouldn't be that way though, should it? You know? No. So the pituitary gland at the base of our brain Uh, she's the mother gland, so she's always communicating with the adrenals, the ovaries, the thyroid, basically giving information about whether we're safe or not. So whenever we have high circulating levels of adrenaline, whether it's for all the reasons we mentioned a minute ago, lots of coffee, perceiving lots of pressure and urgency, lots of risks of being seen as our forward words, all of that leads us to make all that adrenaline. The pituitary then gets the message that you're literally not safe. So she then says to all the other endocrine glands, the thyroid, ovaries, adrenals, we're not safe, do your thing. So, so many people's bodies, pretty much other than when they're asleep, are getting the message that they're not safe. And that's having dire health consequences on women's health. And as you say, it's just, it's common, but it's not normal. It's not supposed to be that way. And for men, testosterone, obviously, as you guys would know, is so linked to far more than just libido, to muscle mass, to a man's happiness is hugely dependent on his testosterone levels. And it's that same pathway that I'm just talking about. So when a man's really stressed, instead of the progesterone being converted effectively into testosterone, as well as holding some progesterone, his body's saying, no, no, we need to go into overdrive making cortisol right now, which the the effect of cortisol on a man and woman's body, because it says there's no food left in the world, one of its jobs is to slow metabolism down. And to do that, it's catabolic, so it breaks all your, starts to break your muscles down, which has big consequences for blood glucose regulation, uh, for your immune response, but also, and not just your functionality of your body and your strength, but also that metabolic rate, because with less muscle mass, 
you have high body fat levels and it tends to stick to you in really distinct places. You get fat around the middle and you grow bingo wings on the back of your arms and you grow what I lovingly call a back veranda, so you get back fat. (laughs) (laughs) We don't understand it and we're frustrated because we think, oh, I'm eating and exercising how I always have and, you know, my torso's really thickened up. But your body has your very, very best interests at heart. It's just we don't understand the information we're giving it. And because cortisol was made when there was no food left in the world, we get thick on our torso because the body's trying to protect all the organs that keep us alive. To keep them going, they need warmth, nutrients, protection. So that's why we get thicker. And so your poor body is just trying yeah. its best. It really is. Yeah, I mean, I guess like your body's just functioning perfectly as it should be, as it's evolved to. But we now live in a world and in society that's just so stressful and we the body is kind of in overdrive, right? Yeah, it mm. is. It's on the receiving end of inaccurate information now because when a tiger suddenly jumped out of the jungle at us and we produced adrenaline, we then have all the biochemical consequences of that. So blood pressure goes up. One in three adults in New Zealand has high blood pressure. There's a lot of mechanisms behind that, but this is one of them. The blood supply that's normally so fantastic to our digestive system gets diverted away from digestion to the periphery, to the arms and the legs, because that's what will allow us to fight the fight or get out of there. One in five women in New Zealand has irritable bowel syndrome. Food's playing a role in that, but so is this stress response. And then the third big thing that constantly living in that place does is it changes the fuel that your body perceives as safe and appropriate for you to use. So in any moment, the body can only use glucose or fat. We're always using a combination of both. But the ratios of glucose to fat is enormously impacted upon by your the perception of your nervous system about whether you're safe or not. Because there's, there's lots of adrenaline. The body says our life's in danger. We need a fast-burning fuel to power us to get out of the danger. And that's going to be glucose, not fat. So over the years, I've literally met thousands of people who have lost the ability to use body fat as effectively as a fuel because they're forever having this stress response switched on. So big consequences. Yeah, that's something I've noticed a little bit. At least it's sort of a theory that I have for some people that I've seen who head along to some high intensity gyms and stuff, sort of like F45 type things and similar CrossFits and stuff. And they'll do it sort of five days a week, 6 a.m., Twice they're getting a day up. sometimes. Yeah, and, they, and they're pushing their bodies pretty hard, first thing in the morning, potentially not getting enough sleep. Then they'll go to work and it might be a stressful day and blah, blah, blah. And they wonder why they're not losing any body fat because they're exercising so frequently in such high intensities. But I think that would just come down to putting the body under too much stress, right? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And that's what I mean by the body's going to respond to the information you give it. So if during the day that person's world was really chilled, and they didn't have really any responsibility or they had a belief system where they just didn't sweat the small stuff, then it might be a different experience, a different response to the exercise. But that's not how most people live. It's they exercise with intensity, then they live with intensity. Mm. There's no rest. And stress is bad for us when it's relentless. Obviously, there's a thing called eustress, spelt E-U, stress, that's very positive. Like a gymnast doesn't get his extraordinary body because he's never stressed himself. He's stressed his body enormously, but he rests between it, which is how the muscle obviously expands. Mm. But with psychological stress, we don't let ourselves rest from it. And that's the difference. And that's why it eats away at us. Yeah. So for someone who's trying to lose body fat, potentially if they're stuck in that sort of place where they're exercising really high, high intensity, potentially for them doing something like yoga or Pilates or something low intensity, low stress would be more beneficial for fat loss? In my experience, yes. A lot of people, I think, exercise with intensity with the belief system, the old belief system that the calorie equation is the only thing that changes body shape and size. So that's got to be smashed first Mm. before they're going to feel safer or, or comfortable exercising with less intensity. And then 
I think we need to, I'm not an exercise expert at all. I have worked with some brilliant people who've taught me lots of things. And so I've developed, I guess, opinions about it. So I'm sharing my opinion right now, not my expertise. But I think it's really important that we look at what someone's wanting to achieve from exercise and what do we want from it. I think we want a functional body. We live too short and die too long, I think. We want a health span, not just a lifespan. So to do that, to have that really functional body, we need strength. So therefore we must work on our muscle mass, men and women. We need flexibility because you want to be able to put your own shoes on for your whole life. You want to be able to twist your neck so you can keep your driver's license. And then we need energy. And I think that third one is, to come back to your question about weight loss, I think that third one is really key. There are people who are so adrenally depleted that doing, say, sprint work or doing sort of short, sharp bursts of exercise would deplete them even further. And they do really well with a breath-focused practice. So yoga, there's a form of yoga that I love called stillness through movement that's incredibly restorative. Yin yoga, that type of thing I think is really good for adrenally depleted people, whereas I think people who have got really robust adrenals, they don't have a constantly switched on stress response, they will lose body fat effectively, still doing a, being a bit busier with their exercise. Mm. Yeah. So that third category, the energy, I think is a good one to ask. What energises you with your exercise? Are you depleted after you smash yourself or energised? Yeah, that's a great indicator, isn't it? And so you just touched on the adrenal stuff then. So how do people know if they're adrenally fatigued? Yeah, so it's a relatively new, newly described condition. There are three stages to the stress response. So the first one is what I've really already talked about with high adrenaline. And because that was supposed to be short-lived, because in the past, if a tiger jumped out of the jungle, we either ran away or fought the fight, hopefully won. And then we went back to baseline. Our stress hormones went back to base to nothing. But now we wake up in the morning and open our eyes and think of all the things we've got to get done, throw a few coffees down our throat, look at 600 unopened emails in our inbox, etc. So the adrenaline goes up and then stays up. That's a big change in how we now live. So that then usually leads to the second stage of the stress response, which is elevated cortisol. And that has to happen. That has to kick in because the long-term ongoing adrenaline production doesn't just change blood pressure, digestion, and the fuel we use, what we talked about a moment ago, the fourth big thing it does is it drives inflammation. And the body knows that inflammation is damaging, degrading, leads to degenerative diseases. So to try to protect you from what you're doing to yourself, that's when you go into that second stage of the stress response, which is when cortisol elevates. And the cortisol elevates because it's a very powerful anti-inflammatory. So you haven't dealt with your adrenaline, you've still got high adrenaline, but now you're trying to put the fire of that out with elevated cortisol. And then you get all the metabolic consequences we just talked about of cortisol with the increase in body fat. And then some people stay in that place, but other people go to the third stage of the stress response, which is what we've come to call adrenal fatigue. And that's where your cortisol production has gone too low to meet your needs. So people typically with adrenal fatigue, it's not just, oh, I'm a bit tired because I worked hard yesterday. It's I'm weary in my bones and I am terrified. I will never feel like myself again. They experience a real stiffness in their body, particularly on waking because there's a lot of inflammation because they've stopped making the cortisol to dampen down the inflammation. And they feel their best in the evening. And if they don't go to bed, I call them sleep trains. And you know that feeling you get, you're getting really tired and you think, oh, I could go to sleep now, but there's more jobs to do or I'm watching something on Netflix and I really want to keep watching whatever it is. If you don't get a sleep, when you're adrenally fatigued, if you don't get a sleep train before 10 o'clock, all of us as humans get an adrenaline surge at 11 
and people with adrenal fatigue really feel that so if more than others. So if you're still awake at 11 and you get the big surge, you'll still be awake at 1 o'clock. So then they start to miss out on their sleep, which is a big part of what they need for their recovery. So the adrenal fatigue is coming from lifestyle choices, but also hugely how, how we think. And we've got to start to address how we perceive we need to be for others to like and approve of us. I think yeah. it's a big task. That's really interesting, especially that 11 p.m. thing. Yeah, yes. I was just thinking that too because I'm like, I've totally noticed that in myself. So is that just part of our natural circadian rhythm? Yes, 100%. Because wow. I find that sometimes I can drift off to sleep, like before you, Matt, and then you'll roll over or something and I'll kind of just slowly like wake up again. It might, and it probably is about 11 and then I just can't sleep for like an hour or two. That's it. That's just a natural mm. part of the circadian oh. rhythm. Yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> and just going back to women's hormones a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if there's a lot of truth to this, but I seem to be hearing about a lot of women have too much estrogen or estrogen dominance. So it seems to be a bit of a problem. Can you tell us a little bit about why you think that might be and what are some of the effects that can have on mm. our bodies? Yeah, with pleasure. So, well, not really with pleasure because it's a big problem. Uh, so it's really common and it's part of what contributes to the PMT picture that I described earlier. So across the menstruation years, women make estrogen from their ovaries, from their adrenals and from their body fat predominantly, a couple of other places, but in a very minor way. They're the three main ones. And then once menopause hits, obviously it's the ovarian production of hormones that cease and we continue to make, some, we're supposed to make estrogen a little bit from our adrenals and our body fat. So that's all the internal supply. We also get estrogen, unfortunately, now from the environment because there are substances that the structure of them is very similar to estrogen. So if they enter the body, they can bind to the estrogen receptors in both men and women. And anything that binds to an estrogen receptor exerts the effect of estrogen, whether it is true estrogen or not. So unfortunately, those estrogen-like substances are coming from certain plastics and some pesticides. So they're pretty widespread uh, throughout most people's lives. My way of encouraging people to deal with that is to just never, ever heat plastic. And the biggest trick with that is that means don't put it in the dishwasher because dishwashers get pretty hot. So hand wash plastic because it's when the plastic gets hot that some of these problematic things can be leached from it. Is that all plastic? or Like what's the deal with BPA? Is that... So BPA is a bisphenol, and that's great that that's out of plastic, but there's lots of other bisphenols. The list is right. a bit so even if it, Of course there is. Even, <laughs> if even if your plastic's BPA-free, it's still... I'm still very... Because we're guinea pigs with a lot of things, and I just think it's wise. There may be nothing in it, and I hope there's nothing in it, but I think it's just really wise to not eat any kind of plastic, whether it's hard or soft, whatever it is. Yeah. And then as far as minimising our exposure to pesticides go... We need to do what we can in that area. Obviously, if we can choose organic food, if we have access to it, if we can afford it, that's brilliant. I think people who can afford organic food need to buy it because if you can afford it and buy it, it will make it cheaper for others. Got to support it. That's yeah. it. Uh, to keep that conversation realistic, it's a, bi- a reason why I'm a big fan of farmers markets. Crazy that we know the names of our doctors and dentists, but we don't know the names of our farmers because we owe despite all of our technological advances, we owe our entire existence to the quality of 30 centimetres of topsoil and the fact that it rains. And yet we don't shake our farmers' hands and say, thanks so much for putting nutrients back into the soil so that I can actually get them into my body. Because in conventional farming, they typically are fertilising with three nutrients, 
nitrogen, potassium and phosphorus. But if they're putting three back, there's 52 missing. And food is the only way those things get in our body. So meeting your farmers who care and thanking them, I think, uh, encourages them to, to keep going because it's not an easy life at times. So, so I think that's important. Anyway, but I also think if you can't buy organic food for whatever reason, or you can do a little bit perhaps, think about how it's grown. So if you eat a banana, maybe it's been sprayed, but you're going to peel it. And I can't tell you how much pesticide ends up on the actual fruit that you're going to ingest. Whereas with an apple, you wash it, but water doesn't get pesticides off because they're fat soluble. So the water doesn't dissolve them. Vinegar can help get them off a little bit, apparently. But yeah, you might want to choose organic apples instead of... Um, uh, conventional ones. Just They're just little ideas of little steps we can take to minimise that. So a big reason for oestrogen dominance is our increased exposure. However, it's also what our body then does with that. So once oestrogen is in our body, whether we've made it ourselves or it's come in externally, you can't just eliminate it. Its structure has to be altered inside our body before we can get rid of it. This is true for men and women, girls, menstruating women, postmenopausal women, men and boys of all ages, we all have to change the structure of oestrogen inside of ourselves before we can get rid of it. So the first port of call for the change in the structure of oestrogen is our gut bacteria. And there are bacteria dedicated just to the breakdown and, and the altering of the structure of oestrogen. And if they are compromised, it puts an even bigger load on the liver. The liver's involved no matter what, but if the bugs in the colon can't do their job properly, the liver has an even bigger job to do with oestrogen metabolism. So a good way to picture oestrogen detoxification is that uh, the liver has two, it actually technically has three, but I'll just focus on two to keep the message simple. The liver has two stages to detoxification, just called phase one and phase two. So imagine a unit of oestrogen has done its job in the body. It's run out of puff. There's more oestrogen to replace it, but this little unit of oestrogen is ready to leave the body because you don't want the old stuff to accumulate. So it arrives at the front door of the liver. So just picture it looks like an olive. And then it travels along the entry point into the liver and its structure gets slightly changed in phase one detoxification. So imagine the olive gets a toothpick stuck in it. And then that new structure can choose one of five pathways to travel along in phase two detoxification. And once it's done that, its structure's changed again. So imagine the toothpick gets snapped and then you incorporate that new form of oestrogen into your urine or your faeces and you get rid of it out of your body. So you want that to happen really efficiently. And a big contributor to oestrogen dominance, unfortunately, is the phase two pathways in the liver. They have a huge amount to deal with now. They've got to deal with alcohol, refined sugars, trans fats in processed cakes and biscuits and muesli bars, anything synthetic, whether that's from medication, pesticides, there's such an array of synthetic substances entering our bodies. Products of gut bacteria, if you've got dysbiosis in your gut. Uh, infection. So those phase two pathways have got so much to deal with, to put it simply, loads of biscuits and Chardonnay over 20 years of your life. And the body will always prioritise what you've consumed externally before it's going to deal with something you've made yourself. So the liver says, well, I have to deal with the wine before I deal with the oestrogen because the wines come from outside and you've made your own oestrogen. So how problematic can that really be? So the oestrogen's not prioritised. Wow. So the best way to picture what happens is the oestrogen travels along the phase one pathway, no problem, and then it hits the midpoint of the liver and it's trying to get onto its phase two pathways, but they're all banked up like traffic on a motorway. There's nowhere for this 
oestrogen in the middle of the liver to finish its detoxification so it can then leave the body. So the best way to picture it is that the liver has a trapdoor. Technically it doesn't, but it's just a good visual. Uh, and the liver has a trapdoor and the oestrogen gets released back out into your blood supply and you start to recycle it. So then you've got all the external oestrogen, your own oestrogen from this month, and you might have six months of accumulation because you can't fully detoxify it, you're just recycling it. So the liver plays the biggest role in our oestrogen metabolism. So at my Women's Health Weekends, any of the work that I do when there's that oestrogen dominance, big, massive focus on the liver and enhancing the body's ability to get rid of it. That's really interesting. I had no idea about the liver focusing on the outside factors first. And so then if it's constantly Mm. getting alcohol every single day, then it's constantly busy with that, right? It doesn't really have time to... It's why, yeah. get involved. It's why, and I say this with all respect and it's really unfortunate, but it's why the regular, and please hear these words, the regular overconsumption of alcohol is so highly linked to breast cancer wow. because that recycled it. A lot of breast cancers are estrogen receptor positive and uh, there's a lot, way more to it than what I've just described. But yeah. in my opinion, it has what I've just described has to be contributing. Yeah, So definitely. yeah, I think we have to get, I'm not being a party pooper, but I do think we need to get really honest with ourselves as a society about how that regular overconsumption of alcohol affects us as individuals, not just our health, but our relationships. Yeah, it's a really big deal. Yeah, mm. definitely. And we constantly justify it as well. But um, but I think it's it's kind of getting to, to the point where we have to take a good look at it because, you know, it's obviously really ha- having an effect on us. Mm. Mm. What are some of the other ways that people can detoxify their estrogen? Yeah, so great question. One of the most potent substances on the planet for doing that are the brassica family of vegetables. So broccoli, cauliflower, kale, Brussels sprouts. There are substances in those veggies called big, long, silly words, glucoraphanin, glufurafane, sulforaphane, indoles. They're all just phytochemicals, just substances naturally present in those vegetables that actually drive the phase two pathway that oestrogen has to travel along. And in New Zealand, we're told that for average basic health, so not kick it out of the park, awesome levels of health and energy, just for average basic health, we need uh, two serves of fruit and three serves of vegetables a day. In Australia, that recommendation is two and five. It actually does my head in that they're different. (laughs) But anyway, (laughs) that's my bugbear, not yours. You don't need to worry about that. So I'm still not even happy with five. I think we need a minimum of seven serves of vegetables a day for good health and for the protective benefits that vegetables give us. So I'm really concerned that the message in New Zealand is that you need three serves of vegetables a day. It's way too low. But even worse than that, less than 10% of adults in this country get that. So less than 10% even eat three measly serves of vegetables a day. So even though it's the most boring message on the planet, everyone can double the amount of vegetables they currently eat to make a really big difference to their liver detoxification of all things, including oestrogen, because there are substances in vegetables that nothing else can replace and our liver cannot do its work properly without those things. And it's it's so basic, but if you look at the way our food choices have kind of gone, like a really common uh, dinner for a lot of families might be spaghetti bolognese. So there's an onion served between four or six people in the family. There might be a few cloves of garlic. Still hasn't really added up to one serve of vegetables. Tomatoes aren't even a vegetable, they're a fruit. But, <laughs> so you know, there's a lot of sugar going yeah. in there as well. <laughs> so there's not a lot of, there's no vegetables basically in that dinner. And if you've had a sandwich for lunch and it's just got a token piece of lettuce on it, you can see how people get mm. through a whole day with no vegetables. Absolutely. Easily. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's 
it's a really basic thing that we need to, I think, commit to is making sure that we're getting our veggies each day. Yeah. I also read somewhere a while ago that the average person in the modern first world only eats between 10 and 15 different foods like in their whole life. Isn't it concerning? It's really concerning. Mm. And then when you see that and then you start thinking about your own diet, I do kind of think, well, we really do have the same foods quite often. So I think variety is also really important, right? Like trying new vegetables to get new nutrients because it's easy to just eat broccoli every day. I think a lot of Kiwis get stuck into that broccoli trap. eh? Absolutely. I mean, it's not a trap. It's still great. But um, Yeah, broccoli's fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, but but we end up eating it like almost most days during winter. Yeah. Do you reckon? Yeah, well, it's just easy to kind of forget about other vegetables, you know. (laughs) So so, so to just kind of go out of your way and be like, here's a new vegetable. I'm going to try it, you know. It's obviously got a different vitamin and mineral makeup that I might need. And it's the bitterness as well. To come back to your estrogen question, uh, anything that's bitter on our taste buds really stimulates those liver detoxification pathways. But bitter isn't really a flavour that we choose. But all our green veggies have a bitter taste base. So uh, they're, you know, you know turmeric's having a bit of a... It's in favourability right now and it's brilliant, always has been. But, uh, yeah, it has. Uh, it's a great bitter taste thing that the liver loves. Yeah, I get a little bit annoyed with a lot of food that's advertised to us as, you know, it having like turmeric in it or it having some sort of nutritional additive that is beneficial. But what that food is made up of, is, it can be complete crap, you mm. know. Mm. But it's just, it's just a marketing tool. It's just marketing, yeah. Yeah, well, it's like even in skincare, like if you have something that said it's got superfoods in it, you know, and it's like, oh, great, I'm rubbing quinoa on my face, you know. It's like it doesn't really mean anything. I think the best thing, and, and like I don't know about you, Libby, but to just eat the food in its whole source, right? Like don't powder it. Yeah, form. It's don't don't powder it, don't, you know, do anything weird with it. Just eat the actual food. Because what are your thoughts about powders and that sort of thing? Like, because, for example, like in my morning smoothie, I put quite a lot of different powders in it. But sometimes what I think... What powders do you put in? Maca powder sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and green powder. You know, it's got a lot of green veggies in it. But then it makes me think, well, does it actually have any veggies in it? Cacao. Or has kind of all the nutrients been taken out of it when it was powdered? Like, what are your thoughts on that? It's a great question, and it really depends on how it's all been processed because some substances are highly heat sensitive or they're sensitive to maceration and others are very stable in those setups. The reason I understand all of that stuff, I developed a supplement company a couple of years ago called BioBlends, and it's all made from plants, from food and herbs. And it took me 10 years to develop it because I would not put anything into it. And they're, they're little capsules, but there's powder in them. And they're all different, but, right? Like some are great and, and some are just Exactly. Yeah. And if the person who's processing it hasn't got an awareness of what needs to be maintained and what's heat sensitive and what's not, you end up with products that are not going to do anything. So Mm. I made liver love, for example, because of the concentrated pieces of broccoli in it that actually deliver those phytochemicals that I was talking about earlier for the estrogen detoxification. But if if the broccoli hasn't been treated the right way in that processing, they won't be there. And do you find it frustrating when there are so many companies out there and it can be really hard for the consumer to, to know how it's been processed or has the person behind it done the research to understand this sort of thing because they're kind of going in blind essentially, aren't they? Yeah, and it's it's no wonder there's so much confusion because we're privileged to have so much choice but there's also a lot of 
poorer quality choices out there that can be such a waste yeah, of people's time and money. So, yeah, mm. it's tricky to it's very tricky for the consumer to know what's impactful and what's not. Yeah. And just on smoothies, I mean, I really love smoothies, hence why I'm asking these questions. (laughs) But when you are blending up your food and drinking it, is that still going to have the same effect? Because obviously you're not kind of chewing it. And I know that that chewing the food tells your body that it's getting nutrients and the fibre. Are you still getting the same amount if it's all kind of whizzed up? Blended up. Yeah. So... The chewing action is one of the biggest things that stimulates stomach acid production and we need good stomach acid production to establish what's called the pH gradient in the digestive system. So lovely acidic stomach acid and then uh, along the whole tube that is the digestive system, it slowly heads towards a more neutral pH by the time the waste is about to leave our body. It's why little bubbers often have little red bottoms because the pH gradient is not set up when they're born. Babies are born with an immature digestive system. Uh, but in adults, we need that really good stomach acid production to set up a really healthy digestive system. And a lot of people these days inhale their food. <laughs> they don't chew a lot and they're in a big hurry. So I'm a big fan of smoothies for the nutrients they can concentrate. I just don't think people should live on them. So if smoothies are a part of an otherwise, you know, food that you're going to chew. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. An otherwise chewing diet, then fantastic because they're a great way to concentrate nutrients and antioxidants. But I've met lots of people, well, not lots, but I've met a handful of people who think that smoothies are just the best thing ever and they have them for breakfast, lunch and dinner and they don't really eat anymore and that's deeply concerning. Mm. I think it's really interesting, isn't it? Like we just know so much now about the human body and like how everything works. You figure out, okay, well, this about smoothies and, you know, we actually do need to eat and all this sort of stuff. And really everything just always comes back to, oh, yeah, we we probably just need to eat food as it's grown in its natural (laughs) form. Huh, it really is that simple. Everything (laughs) leads back to that. Everything. It's that simple. Yeah. And And we just constantly try and overcomplicate it and overcomplicate it. It's like just eat the food, you know, as it grows, eat food that comes out of the ground. You know, I'll often say to people, there's no such thing as junk food. There's just junk and there's food and you're supposed to eat food. Yeah. And it's that simple. It's great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Here's a quick message from our sponsor, Sabaru. Well, it's no secret that both you and I bloody love Sabaru. We both drive them. Yep, that's no secret. Well, I drive a Sabaru Forester and that one car of the year last year in 2018. It's a medium SUV, and you may ask, what does a medium SUV mean? Well, it means you get all the good stuff of an SUV, of like feeling, you know, quite cool and high up in your big car, but it's a lot easier to to drive around the city, and it's a lot easier to park, which is a big one for me. I mean, I kind of need all the help I can get in that department. Mm, Yes, I'd agree with that. Well, okay, I can understand why that one car of the year. Mm. And it's super safe, it's comfortable, and it's full of tech. Some of that tech exclusive to Subaru. Well, like what? Well, like the driver recognition system. So, for example, if you get in my car and drive it, which sometimes happens, and you change all the settings, you're putting the chair back, you're turning the mirrors, and then if I get back in the car, it's going to scan me, know who I am, and put all my settings back in place automatically. That is quite cool tech. I know. It's super epic. And what do you drive? Outback. Thoughts? Sabaru Outback. Love it. It's the people's car, the car of New Zealand. Why is that? Well, it does everything. You can you drive around the city. It's all-wheel drive. You can shoot up the mountain. It's got built-in roof racks, chuck some boards on the roof, head down for a surf, big enough space in the back. You can go on road trips. You can, I've slept in the back. It's that big. Yeah, that is actually impressive because you're quite tall, aren't you? Mm, correct. 
So go on, go check out one for yourself. Visit Subaru.co.nz to check out the Subaru range and find an SUV to suit your lifestyle. And unlike Auckland's house prices, they're totally affordable. You touched on on trans fats before. That's kind of an interesting one that I wanted to ask you about because fats can be a little bit confusing to people. Like there's saturated fats and so many people have grown up thinking that fat is bad, but obviously there are so many different types. So what is trans fat and how is that different to saturated fat? So trans fats are damaged fats. So trans fats are formed when vegetable oils get heated to really high temperatures and their structure actually changes. And in that process, they release free radicals, which are have an oxidising effect. We need antioxidants to mop up the damage of those because the shape of the fat, even though it's microscopic level, the shape of the fat changes and so it changes then the way it behaves in our body. They're very damaging to human health. So they're the big watch outs. So it's why deep fried food is not a good regular choice. They used to be in margarines, but the food production law people clamped down on that and uh, now the amount in margarine is uh, massively reduced. There's a little bit still there. Essentially, they're from damaged vegetable fats that have been heated up, which tends to only happen in processed foods. So that's why I said processed cakes and bickies, um, that type of thing. So that's we need to ma- minimise those because of the negative effect on human health. Right. So vegetable oils would would be okay, but just not kind of heated until their structure changes. Not a big fan of cooking with vegetable oils. It really depends. There's no hard and fast rules, but we know that Things that are very stable at temperatures are the saturated fats, things like ghee or coconut oil, but not everyone goes well with those. So olive oil, macadamia nut oil, they can be really good choices as well, just cooking on, I think, just cooking on your stovetop because you're not going to, they're not going to change their structure on a stovetop with that sort of heat. Mm. And because part of the vegetable oil thing as well is that a lot of them are, the way they're created is not very, in a very healthy way, right? That's exactly right, yeah. yeah. And then they're so widely spread throughout the processed food and they're, the type of them is, or their behaviour, they're an omega-6 in their structure. Fat has a carbon backbone, so just imagine the letter C joined together with lots of other letter capital Cs and there's either a single line between each letter C or a double line. And when there's a double line, an equal sign, that's a double bond and it's unstable. The more double bonds, the less heat-stable something is. And so vegetable oils typically have quite a few equal signs in their backbones. So they become problematic at lower temperatures than uh, monounsaturated fats like olive oil or macadamia nut oil or the saturated fats, to be fair. Mm. Yeah. There's so much to it. And unfortunately, so much nutrition information that's out there is marketing based. That's why I think it's so hard for consumers to be discerning in their choices because it's kind of nutrition science. We've got to be able to look past, I think, uh, the marketing uh, that's out there. Absolutely. Yeah, because we always say that it's kind of frustrating to be essentially a slave to food marketers. If you don't understand nutrition, it can be really hard because you just trust what you're reading on the packet. And, you know, yeah, could and be I anything mean, in there. That's right. And I think we've just all been part of a big experiment with refined carbohydrates and sugars and stuff like that up and until now, and... really, where people are clicking on to it being so detrimental to our health. Yeah, there's definitely a, a waking up process. I feel my concern, though, is it's almost like the divide is getting bigger. There's still a lot of people who need a lot of help in accessing knowledge about how detrimental to health refined sugars and refined flours can be. And then there's people who are really on board with it. I feel like, yeah, there's, the divide is getting bigger. So we've, it's still so important that we reach people that may not really know that yet or um, for whatever reason have, have trouble making changes. And, yeah, yeah. that's part yeah. of the emotional aspect, I guess, yeah. of the work that I do. And 
Yeah, so I think because um, there's a bit of a misconception, I guess, because a lot of people think that flour is healthy and wheat is healthy and that sort of thing, but it's very different. The wheat and flour now is very different to what it was 50 years ago, isn't it, you know, that our grandparents were having. It's got a lot more gluten, much more pesticides. I don't think it's quite as simple as like, oh, well, our great-grandparents had it and they're fine. I think it's it's just a different world now, isn't it? It is such a different world, yeah. yeah. And we're exposed to so many more problematic substances than ever before. So, yeah, our extraordinary earth suit has, it needs a lot more support, I think, to get rid of these problematic substances effectively. Mm. Yeah. Is there like something that you kind of, in terms of nutrition, like an overarching paradigm or, or like some sort of philosophy or like tell people that they can sort of stick to with nutrition that's just the way to go? Like, because for me, although I, d- I don't like the sort of the cult sort of weird thing that's associated, people get scared of the word paleo, but for me, I like that because it's a line in the sand and it's kind of like, yep, it promotes eating natural food that was grown, you know, and staying away from processed stuff. So for me, I like that. But is there something for you that you, you tell people that's like a good thing to, you can't go wrong if you eat this way sort of thing? The concept was put forward by Michael Pollan uh, and he said, eat food, mostly plants, not too much. Now, when you say eat food, it's that story I mentioned a minute ago. So people, I think, think junk food is food. That's not food. So food is whole real food. Mm. So when you say eat food that's whole wheel food, then we need to make sure plenty of plants are going in. And that's partly because oh, there's, there's so much to this and it's a massive can of worms that I don't, <laughs> I'm not going to fully go into. But So across our lifetime, our kidney function gradually declines from when we're little kids to becoming an elderly person if we get the privilege to live that long. And one of the jobs of our kidneys, amongst many, is to get rid of all sorts of acids that are the byproducts of metabolism. So we must eat protein-rich foods. We absolutely must. We need them. However, my little concern, when people hear paleo, they can think, oh, that's just bucket loads of meat. Lots they don't, of meat, yeah. And I feel like that's an incorrect interpretation of that mm. because paleo needs to be as many vegetables as there is meat. Because the problem when people get really meat-focused is proteins deliver hydrogen ions to the body and hydrogen ions are then converted into a lot of different acids as a function of metabolism. That's fine if you have enough base food, so the opposite of acid is basic or alkaline, If you and the minerals are calcium, magnesium, all those types of minerals are very alkaline in their nature. We have to balance it. And otherwise the kidneys, let's say they can get rid of 50 units of acid in inverted commas in a day. And if your diet gives you 100 units of acid, you're going to retain 50. I'm explaining this really basically. It's not exactly how it works, of course. So then that's not going to have a big impact if you do that occasionally. But the way people eat, it's how they eat year after year, decade after decade. So then by the time you're reaching middle age, you've got, you're starting to have retained acid issues because you haven't eaten enough vegetables. (laughs) So that's a big thing in my message of plenty of plants because it just reminds people that a really nutritious way of eating is whole real foods. Brilliant if that's how you eat. But you've also got to make sure that there are plenty of vegetables on that plate for everything that they give you, including that body runs on, on different pH balances. And we have so many buffering systems inside of us to deal with our poor choices but you deplete yourself of reserves eventually and you ask your kidneys to do a lot of unnecessary work when you do that. So that's part of it. And then the not too much, the third point in my eat food, mostly plants, not too much, 
Um, please know that when I say mostly plants, that's not at the exclusion of anything else. That's just remember to eat your vegetables. Mm. And then the not too much, most people know to not pile their plates dramatically high, but they might if they've got a big emotional relationship with food. So that sort of encapsulates needing to address that if that's something that that you struggle with. So it's not straightforward and I appreciate very much the paleo message because it's eat real food. I just have seen brilliant paleo style diets and I've seen poor quality ones as well. So I think sometimes it just, yeah, as you can hear, I'm obsessed with getting people to eat vegetables. So. Yeah, because there's <laughs> such a misconception around paleo that it's heaps of meat, but it just includes meat, you know. That's exactly. just mm. part of it, but it doesn't necessarily mean you eat it every day. I mean, we try and limit it when we can. Yeah, we've. I mean, it's only probably in the, in the last few months, though, that we've started doing it. I mean, I recently went on sort of a plant-based diet just personally for like a month. And it was like plant-based paleo as well. So it was very, just, just visuals basically. The biggest thing I got out of it was just the psychological realisation that I couldn't remember the last time that I had a day without eating meat before that. I was like, wow. So, and not, yeah, not only heaps, but it was like, yeah, I always eat meat every day. But now we make more of an effort and we um, we have like one or two days a week where we don't have meat. Just give our it's body just good a rest. to be aware of it, I think, and just to give your body a bit of a shake up sometimes. Be like, oh, actually, yeah. I do that out of habit just because I've always done it. You and know? It's so. easy. It's easy to create meals around a meat. Yeah. You know? Mm. Yeah, like with meat being the hero. Yeah. Mm. I want to know a little bit more about things to reduce stress. And like, do you, do you think is sleep a huge part of this topic? Yeah, and it's a really vicious cycle because when we don't sleep properly, our perceptions of stress and pressure and urgency are, in, are greater. Mm. But then because of stress, we usually don't sleep that well. So it's a really vicious one because the reason stress interferes with sleep is because adrenaline says your life's in danger, your body doesn't think it's going to do you any favours by letting you sleep deeply and restoratively. So it keeps you ever so slightly awake because it wants you to be able to wake up and escape from the danger that it thinks that you're in. So uh, adrenaline is a massive reason why a lot of people these days have big sleep problems, but then it makes the next day and the next week and year obviously harder to cope with when you're in that vicious cycle of not sleeping properly. So yeah, I think sleep problems are massively contributed to by high adrenaline and it's there's lots of different parts of the nervous system, but one of the arms of it is called the sympathetic nervous system. And it's fine to go into that fight or flight response sometimes. We're supposed to move between the calm arm of the nervous system, which is the parasympathetic nervous system, and the fight or flight response, the sympathetic nervous system. We're supposed to be able to flow between those, no problem. But a lot of people get stuck in that sympathetic nervous system with that activated all the time, and that's when sleep problems become really chronic. Uh, And uh, the way we breathe has a dramatic impact on stress hormone production. The only thing that's actually been shown to, or the sorry, the thing that's been shown to lower stress hormones the most effectively is to breathe diaphragmatically, so inhaling and your belly sticks forward and exhaling and then your belly shrinks back towards your spine because if you watch a lot of adults, the main part of them that moves when they breathe is the upper part of their chest, so in and out quite rapidly, short, sharp breaths. That's adrenaline driving that. So when we breathe like that, you're setting off that cascade of reactions I mentioned earlier, telling your body that your life's in danger and it can only respond to the information you give it. And you can't be sitting at your desk with all your unopened emails and a couple of coffees and an annoying colleague down the corridor. You can't override it with your thoughts and go, oh, just chill out, dude, it's okay. With all that circulating adrenaline, your body's getting the message that your life is literally in danger. So the way that we live 
that then has, and the way that we perceive things then has that big impact on sleep. I've actually written about in The Invisible Load, I've, there's a whole section that I've called, How Do You Want to Live? And it came to me after I watched two young people who had, they were real entrepreneurial in their, in their natures. And I was doing a speaking job in America and I was in the green room with another speaker. And these two young adults came in and they were amped just so excited to be at this conference and they'd had the opportunity to come backstage and meet some of the speakers and one of the things they asked another gentleman in the green room was, you know, we want to invest in a new business, we're really keen to get going on our next venture, what do you suggest we uh, invest in? And it was when, I don't know what you call them, uh, but businesses like Airbnb and Uber, it's when those those sorts of um, businesses were just really starting. I'm sorry, I can't remember. The, there's a collective word for those types of Disruptive things. or something? or Something, that's mm. a good one, but there's something else of the style of business. Uh, anyway, and they're saying, should we go into that type of thing? And the guy said, you're asking the wrong question. A far better question to ask is how do I want to live? Because he said, if you ask what do you want to invest in, what business do you want to start to do, if you go, well, that might be really lucrative, but you're going to have to work with a lot of computer programmers and they might be night owls. So the hours they want to keep are like 1pm until midnight. So do you want to be in the office until midnight supervising them? Or I'm generalising, but you know they're solitary people or they're introverts or they're not that communicative and you guys are hyperactive and love communicating. So do you want to be working with that style of person? So he just made them stop and think beyond where should they invest or what business should they go into? He asked that question, how do I want to live? And I heard those words and went, oh, I love that so much. And so I've applied it in the book to help people examine their choices and about stress because it's also a great uh, experiment to have when you say to yourself, how do I want to live? You'll start to see what you value and you'll start to see that there are a handful of people who maybe you don't spend enough time with anymore and if they died, you would be devastated. So it just makes you stop and think, how do I want to live? I want to spend more time with that person. When I did the exercise with myself, what came up for me was I used to send people cards or notes in the post. I'd always done it my whole life. And then when my work got incredibly busy, I stopped doing that. I didn't prioritise that anymore. And it means a lot to me to do that for the people I love. And so when I did the how do I want to live exercise, it was one of the things I wrote down was start sending people cards again. So it can be big things or small things, but they're things that just enhance the quality of your life and then hopefully the lives of, of others. So I think that's another great exercise to do for stress reduction is to ask that question. And we can't always change stuff in our life now. You might not be able to quit your job because you've got a mortgage to pay, for example, mm. but you might be able to do smaller things or you may, if you know that that's important to you, you think, okay, well, over the next five years, I'm going to try and transition away from that type of work into something that's more meaningful to me. Whatever, whatever it is, but do the exercise and see what comes up for you because it helps you to live with more congruence with who you really are, I think. What a powerful but simple statement at the same time. Mm. Yeah. That's really cool. And just talking about that stress reduction stuff. Are there any other things that you know of that can help with that sort of thing? So any breath-focused practice, when I first got a job running a health retreat, I had to learn, not had to, got to learn Tai Chi from a Tai Chi master. And a big part of that training is the way that you breathe. And up until then, I'd been a runner. And I had run for one to two hours most days. And I was slim and happy and healthy. And I would have sworn to you that I wasn't doing that for weight management, but I can see in hindsight, of course I was, because it was so ingrained in my original degree at uni that the only way to 
stay slim basically was to, if you're going to eat, you needed to burn the calories off. That was so ingrained in my training. But when I got a job running a health retreat, there was no space to run because I was leaving for work in the dark, getting home in the dark because it was way out in the country. I had to drive quite a way. And so my first job in the morning was to wake the guests up. And by 6am, we were in the middle of nowhere doing half an hour of Tai Chi to the rising morning sun. And it's a very slow moving meditation, basically, where you don't burn very many calories. And then my next job for the day was to take the guests who hadn't exercised in a really long time on what was called the easy walk. So it was 20 minutes on flat ground. So I didn't break a sweat. So my point is, I went from being Little Miss Runner, burning lots of calories to Little Miss Tai Chi, hardly burning any. My eating remained identical across that time. And my clothes got looser and looser across that time. And it fried my brain because based on how I'd been educated, the opposite was supposed to happen. And it was actually that experience, coupled with what I was seeing in more and more of my patients, my clients, that led me to go back to my geeky biochemistry textbooks with the question in my head, what leads the human body to get the message that it needs to burn fat and what leads the human body to get the message that it needs to store fat? And I put those answers into Accidentally Overweight, the first book I wrote. But what I now understand is that that breath work, so doing that Tai Chi, activates, because it's diaphragmatic breathing, for 30 minutes every day. And I loved the way it felt so much that I would do it on my days off as well. What happens is when you breathe diaphragmatically, you activate the parasympathetic nervous system and your body uses fat very effectively as a fuel when that's activated. What we are talking about earlier, when you're in the uh, fight or flight response, the sympathetic nervous system activation with lots of adrenaline, you mostly will utilise glucose as your fuel, not your body fat. So I had a direct experience of that and I'm grateful that I had it at such a young age. It was in my early 20s because I don't know if I would have believed it otherwise because I was pretty sciencey. But that experience made me go and re-examine everything. So it was a great gift. Yeah, that's interesting. I suppose you've seen quite a lot of evolution in the school of nutrition and the philosophy around it since you started learning about it, right? It takes like a person who is who truly is a scientist to actually continue to learn and continue to ask questions again. I'm really passionate about independent thinking and I was really fortunate when I was doing my PhD that I had some really pioneering scientists as my supervisors. One was an immunologist, one was a biochemist and one was a microbiologist and they kind of taught me how to think from a questioning and a, and a scientific perspective and rather than see the marketing to actually truly see the science and yeah, I'm forever grateful uh, to have been exposed to their extraordinary brains because it taught me to critically think and ask questions and not just accept that just because that was written in a textbook or it was what you were taught, it doesn't mean that it's true for everyone or anyone. And it's another message I'm trying to bring back to people is we've really lost, I think we've really lost trust in ourselves and our own instincts. There's a voice inside all of us that has our back. We know when it's time to go to bed. We know when it's time to get off our emails. We know when it's time to rearrange our shoulders because we've been sitting with scrunched over posture for too long or have a drink of water, whatever it is. We just don't always listen to and act on that voice inside of us. But yeah, I'm trying to, I guess, put people back in the driver's seat of their own health so that they don't feel like they've got to constantly look externally for guidance because there's a real common sense voice and a loving voice inside all of us. Yeah, I completely agree with that because I think in general, in our modern society, we've gotten so out of touch with our own bodies that, that we kind of see it as if you have a symptom, then it's your body being bad and doing something wrong and you have to go and get something to fix that that problem. But it's it's so much more complicated than that, you know? Like it's your body telling you something. It's your body saying, hey, something isn't right or this is starting to, to affect me. Um, 
So uh, what are some ways, because I know it's kind of easy to say, um, try and be in tune with your own body and listen to your own body, but do you have any ways, practical ways that people can start to, to do that if they have been kind of outsourcing to, to other people for so long? How, how, do, how do they bring it back to themselves? Notice what changes. So if that's uh, that you start getting recurring headaches or last winter you had one cold and this winter you had five. Um, you used to sleep really well, now you don't. You used to do a poo every day effortlessly and now it's all over the place. It's diarrhoea one day, it's constipation the next, your tummy's constantly bloated. All of that is feedback about our choices and what's going on. So it's it's actually noticing when something has changed in your body and then acting to understand that and what that is. And I'm not denying that experts aren't needed. If, you know, if you need legal advice, you see a lawyer, we can't be experts in everything. And sometimes you do need help to decipher what your body is, is actually communicating to you. But once you then start to understand that, yeah, it's acting on it so that you're then in that driver's seat. Yeah. And I guess then understanding your own body kind of makes it easier to make decisions about your body as well so so for example if you do go and see an expert then you can go and say okay well maybe I don't want to take antibiotics if it's if it's not as bad as I think or or if it's not affecting me too much I can try and think of a way around it or try and change some lifestyle factors first you know so Mm. yeah just on antibiotics do you know any like natural foods that people can have instead of having antibiotics to give it a go like first I think it's important to understand that there are some infections that are highly responsive to antibiotics and some that aren't. Mm-hmm. Antibiotics reduce the duration of some infections and they don't reduce the duration of other infections. So I think it's really important to work with a health professional or an integrative GP who really understands all of that. Mm-hmm. So I'm a big fan of trying to prevent things from happening or reduce the suffering once it has occurred. So there are some beautiful uh, herbal medicines that help support the immune system, things like Echinacea, Astragalus, Andrographis. They're all really good immune support. Vitamin C is one of the best things for our immune system on the planet. Uh, Zinc is incredibly important for the immune response uh, as well. Of course, rest is. So uh, when we get stressed relentlessly, our immune system in that sense, can also be compromised. There are also some antimicrobial, antiparasitic, those types of herbs. So Chinese wormwood and black walnut are two really good ones for the gut when the infection's in the gut. My issue is with the overuse of antibiotics, not with them themselves. They save people's lives at times. Absolutely, yeah. It's when um, they just turn to it, you know, every the minute you get a bit snotty. <laughs> One of the reasons we mount a fever is to sterilise ourselves. So allowing within reason, obviously you've got to watch it with little kids, but being able to mount a fever to sterilise your body is really effective. Um, but, yeah, making the vitamin C and the zinc and any or the foods that are rich in that really important. Mm. And do you reckon we can get all of the nutrients we need from food? Or do you think we do need to, like, supplement some things? I really wish we could get everything from food. I really wish we could, but I no longer believe we can. And that's because of the soil. Yeah, so okay. if it's if a nutrient's not in the soil, it's not in our food. And so even organically grown food, do you think? It's wonderful. Yeah. And it's often higher in nutrients. There's some studies to support that. Obviously, it's free of pesticides. But the reason I think our requirements need some additional help, particularly at times, is, yes, because of soil quality, but also every single biochemical process in our body relies on a nutrient to start the fire. So for one substance to get converted into something else, 
which is one biochemical reaction, let's say you need zinc and magnesium. So if you're deficient in either or both of those, that reaction won't fire properly. And that slowly means our health deteriorates over time. So zinc used to be in our soil and we'd get it with when we ate fruits and veggies, for example. But now the only real food sources of zinc we have are oysters, red meat and pumpkin seeds. There's a little bit in eggs and a little bit in sunflower seeds. So a lot of people don't get enough zinc these wow. days. Mm. Yeah. And it's so critical for so many of those enzymatic reactions that I just described. And there are literally billions of biochemical reactions going on inside of us every split second. And it's the nutrients that drive those. So a lot of our nutrition gets used up in making those reactions happen. You know, just talking, for example, about the liver detoxification pathways, if the nutrients aren't available for those, we can't do that work properly. And I think our requirement for nutrients is a little bit higher these days because we've got even more to process with that. And the third reason I think supplementation is needed is because of stress. So with stress, we produce more free radicals and free radicals damage our tissues, lining of blood vessels, any tissue in our body. But to prevent damage by free radicals, we need antioxidants because antioxidants donate an oxygen back to the free radical, which is a single unit of oxygen, and pair it up again and then it's happy because it's got a friend and oxygen is happy when it's got another oxygen with it and then it won't damage our tissues anymore. So that requirement for antioxidants, I think, is another reason why, unless you're a superstar vegetable eater, (laughs) then maybe you don't need it. But otherwise, I I don't think that's many people. Mm. And so supplements that you think would be useful for the majority of the population, what what would they be? Uh, I think most people need liver support these days. I think some people will do really well just with a multivitamin and mineral, a good quality one. They need to be formulated by scientists rather than thrown together by marketers. Just your average Joe. Bioblings, you guys, you do one, don't you? Like a green? Yes, I do organic daily greens and radiant reds. That's a powder. And then my liver love tablets. Yeah, that's that that was the biggest reason I did bioblings in the first place was to make liver love. Mm. Yeah. So, um, and then I I also think an omega-3, because it's very difficult to eat enough omega-3 fats and they're very powerful in their anti-inflammatory action. So, uh, Algae, for example, there's some good quality algae out there that'll give us some omega-3. That can also be good. But just for basic nutritional cover, yeah, a multivitamin, a mineral and probably some liver support I think is really important these days. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like our poor livers are having a a bit of a hard time in the modern world. Yeah, totally. And just one thing I want to know is you mentioned you used to do Tai Chi. Do you still do Tai Chi or some form of like meditation or anything like that? Uh, No, I don't regularly anymore. So that was a big part of my world for 12 years consistently and it gave me a level of calm that I hadn't experienced in a really long time and it helped me ask that question how do I want to live and then make adjustments in my thinking in my choices in how I was living to live more like that so I will still do it sometimes but I'm to answer your question honestly I'm not in a routine of doing it I literally now wake up in the morning and do whatever I want I used to be a really rule person I had to do this very rigid and I realized that a lot of that was fear-based and wasn't really serving me because there's not a lot of health when you're frightened so for me freedom and flexibility was a really important thing to incorporate into my world so my morning now is commonly watching the sunrise, watching the birds, watching the light change. But I can guarantee you that I'm breathing diaphragmatically while I do that because it's more inbuilt now. I can feel when I come out of that place. Whereas before I was living with the short, sharp, shallow breath. Around the time I wrote Rushing Woman Syndrome, I wrote that because I 
had that insight from that experience, which was a great gift and also with my patients. So yeah, it, I, I live more like that now. And that doesn't mean I wouldn't benefit from going back to some kind of regular practice. I, I think people do that, get a lot of benefit from regularity. I regularly exercise, for example, um, but I'm not regularly doing that, but I am very breath aware. So and have those, that lovely ritual in the morning of doing what I feel like, but usually something in nature. I really love that you do that because I think there is a lot of talk about how beneficial meditation is, but it's also something that people are a little bit turned off by because it's there is a lot of structure to it. And it's another thing to add. It's another in. thing to add in. It's another thing to have to learn or think about or download an app for, make the time for. I mean, Maddie and I, we've been meditating for the last like few years on and off. But even like I don't do it every day. I, like I sometimes maybe once a week, sometimes it's every day. I don't know. But I've um, recently just started seeing um, doing nothing as a great form of meditation for myself. So just sitting down, usually in nature, and just doing nothing and putting my phone away and yeah, literally doing nothing. Sometimes I'll think about things. Sometimes I'll think about nothing. And it's just a really pleasant experience. And it's great if you can in- incorporate meditative practices just and in, into how you live just like you do because then it doesn't seem like a task it doesn't seem seem like something that you get stressed about if you miss it's just part of your life it's how you breathe you're calm all the time or you know most of the time um yeah that's how I like to to do it as well because then if I don't do it then I have that feeling of like oh well I've I've failed, failed at that yeah. and it just bring brings on that little bit of stress like oh I can't even just do that today, you know? So I think, yeah, I like your approach. I think that's a bit more me mm. too. Mm. You're going to have to get up for the sunrise, eh? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Without a snooze. Not letting me off that easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then on to our final question, it's arguably the most important. If you could have three foods, three foods only for the rest of your life, what would they be? Butter. Oh, yeah, good one. Yum. Parsley and lemons. Really? How are you going to Oh, do I have to blend them? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I no. mean, you've got to live off them. Well, actually, no. Oh, no, I, I can't mean, live off that. <laughs> I need well, some protein. I mean, you can. I mean, there's been there's been stranger <laughs> foods, I guess, put out there. Yeah, they've all been very different, which I like. Butter, parsley, and lemons. And lemons. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Lemons is a good one, actually. That's all. It's all. Yeah, the lemons and parsley is quite fresh, isn't it? Mm. Mm. Well, see, there's so there are so many nutrients in parsley. So I'd, if it was the only one of three things, I'd have to eat a lot of it. Really? Yep. And then the lemons are, yeah, the citrate, the citric acid in it is so good for. Oh gosh, the list is kind of endless. But what I was talking about before with that acid base balance, love them and they're fantastic for digestion and. I eat butter most days, so mm. I could never. I, that if I had to give it, you know, yeah, love it. Yes, you probably would be quite healthy. You could live off that. <laughs> I think you'd become you protein could? deficient. Well, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, anybody that that eats three there's foods, there's a bit of, the of protein. Of life is going to be deficient in something. Yeah. Aren't they? Yeah. 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 I guess so. <laughs> yeah. At least one of those things is a multivitamin. No, what, okay, well, what would be, okay, that's another discussion, but what, like, three foods that you wouldn't become de- deficient in anything off? Well, I don't think that's possible. I don't mm. think it's possible. I, I really could, don't. I could maybe swap, to try to cover more bases, I could swap 
the the lemons for eggs. Mm. Oh yeah. So then it'd be butter, eggs, parsley. So they go together. Oh, there you go. Scrambled eggs every morning. (laughs) Poached eggs with parsley on them. Well, scrambled eggs, actually. Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) On that note. Um, On that note, so your new book, The Invisible Load, is now out, which is very exciting. So how do people find you, find your books? Um, You also got some talks? Yeah, I do. I'm uh, just I'm starting a speaking tour throughout Australia and New Zealand throughout the back end of August, all of September and October. Uh, the topic of the speaking tour is overcoming overwhelm. So I'll bring elements of the book to life as, as well as some other things to help yeah, people really examine what stress really is for them so that they can ideally live with a lot less stress and all of the consequences of that. Uh, so my website is drlibby.com. There's information about where I'll be speaking uh, all throughout uh, Aussie and New Zealand. My book is available there and as well as throughout bookshops in New Zealand and Australia. I've got some online courses. I run Women's Health Weekends. There's lots of blogs on my website. So yeah, hopefully it's useful for people. Cool. And your Instagram, what's your Instagram? Dr. Libby, D-R-L-I-B-B-Y. A little boy once said to me, it looks like dribbly. <laughs> <laughs> But it's actually D.R. Libby. <laughs> yeah, if you look at how it's yeah, spelled, so, you know. Yeah. So it's nearly dribbly. <laughs> it's really cute. Libby. Very cute. Oh, well, thank you so much for your time because we know how incredibly busy you are. So it was really cool to chat no, to you No, it's been today. a joy. I've loved it. Thank you so much for your lovely questions and your beautiful faces. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Thank you indeed. This podcast is brought to you by Raw Collective. And for any updates on our podcast or any of the other podcasts under Raw, head to rawcollective.co or you can follow them on Instagram at raw underscore collective.co. But wait, before you go, please subscribe to our podcast and also rate it and review it. Leave a nice little message. Leave a smiley face, maybe an emoji. Or tell your friends. It's super easy. It takes two seconds and it would mean so much to us. Bye. Bye.